Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everyone, to another broadcast of This Week in Accountable Care. My name is Greg Greg Masters. I am, almost forgot my name there. I'm your host of the program, and we're broadcasting today on a sunny but brisk day in San Diego, California. It's March the 7th, 2012, and I'm uh, delighted to uh, welcome back to the broadcast um, a, a friend and cohort and thought leader, in the uh, in the world of accountable care and primary care uh, practices and so forth, Dr. Gordon Moore. Dr. Moore, now I'm going to read you what I pulled up on the site for Dr. Moore. Dr. Moore is a national leader in improving health care in primary care and medical office practices. He is the president of Ideal Medical Practices. And for details on ideal medical practices, just click on the site and you can see a direct link, which is a nonprofit supporting adoption of ideal practices in healthcare settings across the country. Dr. Moore serves as an advisor, expert, faculty to numerous initiatives working to achieve better health outcomes while bending the cost curve. His work focuses on the intersection of operations, measurement, patient satisfaction, staff satisfaction, outcomes, and costs. So, Dr. Moore, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks for having me on, Greg. Glad you could make it. So I thought we would uh, kick off today with uh, you telling us a little bit about what you're doing over at Ideal Medical Practices, perhaps in particular, but maybe in general towards this whole idea of accountable care, which now has really appropriately expanded beyond the ACO label where just an organization into more broad-based accountable care initiatives, which includes some of the private stuff that's going on between payers and, and the commercial marketplace. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing, and then let's get into the whole accountable care uh, update situation. You bet. Um, since we talked last, actually, I've taken on a position with Treo Solutions, which is a data and analytics company that works for health plans and health systems that are looking to uh, transition payment into accountable care organizations or patient-centered medical homes or, or new payment models that are more aligned with the kind of outcomes that we're looking for. Uh, so I've been sitting in quite a bit on discussions between plans and provider systems as they're looking at how do we become accountable care organizations, what does that mean, how do we measure success, how do we know if we're heading in the right direction? What quality uh, means in this new context, and how would we know it when we see it? So let me just say that's treosolutions.com, treosolutions.com. Now, they have an interesting uh, equation up on their homepage, patient payment transformation plus alignment equals accountable care. Tell us about that. Yeah, nothing, I think, uh too shocking to any listeners here, but the idea that uh, we could do a lot better in aligning the kind of incentives that roll out of payment if we were to change some of the payment parameters. 
right now we've got a volume-driven system. The more you do, the more you get paid, regardless of the relative value of those things that are done. And so according to lots of studies, there is a lot of misuse, overuse, in some cases underuse of resources within healthcare based on the payment model. So the concept underpinning accountable care organization is to try to better align the incentives through payment. So for instance, if uh, a provider system, a hospital system, is going to participate in an accountable care organization payment model, they would likely be held to total cost of care contracting where avoiding use of unnecessary resources could lead to a gain-sharing agreement, for instance, between plan and the provider system. Okay. So uh, with that as a broad brush, tell us about what what you're seeing in your travels across the country. Uh, what I'm seeing are, is a great deal of interest. Uh, first, when the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services came out with its framework for accountable care organizations on the heel of the uh, Affordable Care Act, there was uh, a lot of interest. But then looking at the details, a lot of people were pretty put off by the initial rule set that came out. But that didn't stop a lot of commercial plans from continuing the discussions, because I think a lot of plans and uh, clinicians and hospital systems read the writing on the wall. They know that we can't keep doing what we're doing. The game's going to change. And so even though all the parameters are not perfectly understood, even though uh, there's a great deal of uncertainty in exactly how it's all going to pan out, uh, it seems that there's a reasonable uh, acceptance of the idea that there's the general principles make sense. And so if we can work out the details and set up a payment model that doesn't uh, inadvertently uh, benefit just one side and trash the other, and if uh, it seems to make sense, then it's worth stepping into these uh, uncharted waters and trying it out. It's fair to say the genie's out of the bottle, correct? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Uh, you know, I'm certainly seeing... Uh, health systems now stepping up and signing contracts with payers to try this out, you know, multi-year contracts based on total cost of care triggers that would reward the hospital system for avoiding unnecessary hospital admissions, readmissions, uh, emergency room visits, and de-emphasizing a lot of the biometric detail that uh, before we were pegging as quality, now we see, you know, that are really just process indicators that have uh, very little impact on what CMS is calling the triple aim of improving overall quality, the experience of care, and bending the cost curve. So if you let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, you're, you're a primary care physician. You, you, you've placed a rather uh, definitive stake in the ground around exemplary primary, pra- primary care practice or exemplary practice, per se. Where's the role of primary care in, uh, in these um, uh, accountable care-led initiatives, particularly those that may be organized, if not stewarded, by institutional systems? The primary care is foundational. Uh, it's, the, it's the essence of what you need if you're going to affect improve total population health. It's what comes out of studies uh, that have gone on for years comparing the United States to other high-performing health systems and even looking at regions of the United States 
vis-a-vis the presence and access to primary care uh, versus specialty care. We know people who receive good primary care are less likely to end up in the hospital, less likely to be readmitted, less likely to use the emergency department, and more likely to achieve good process indicators on chronic disease management. So the primary care is, is absolutely essential. Uh, but there's a difference between high-performing and low-performing primary care, but you've got to have primary care if you're going to pull this off. So what I see now are mostly hospital systems because they have negotiating legs. They know how to they know how to do the dance with the health plan, coming together and negotiating contracts. The difficulty for hospital systems is, uh, and the hospital-centric systems is that they have to solve a tough problem, which is that the shared savings are all coming out of the avoided use of hospital resources, which is typically the cash cow for a hospital-based system. So uh, they have to make up that shortfall in some other way, and most of them are looking at reducing leakage of their attributed members to other systems, improving market share by trying to attract more uh, patients to their primary care base, and uh, the third part, which is probably going to be the most valuable in the long run, is trying to affect better uh, care management for the individuals attributed to their ICO. So let me add uh, some levity, but uh, definitely material intent to, to, to the answer to the question. Uh, people like you and uh, the many physicians that may be associated with the exemplary primary care practice network and therefore the potential for a high-performing system, the phone, your phone must be ringing. Your phone and your tribe's phone must be ringing off the hook because there are so many CEOs and CFOs who want to get you involved in the strategic conversation around what accountable care business planning should look like in their community. Am I correct? Yeah, this is now the big question. If, if I, I think most people, when they step back and look at the three different moves that a health system can make to succeed under an accountable care contract, the first two of network leakage and market share eventually become a zero-sum game and don't fundamentally change the overall cost equation. So the one that has the most merit in solving uh, national problems that are facing healthcare right now is really about better organizing care. And so that's why I'm working with TREO and I do talk to health plans and health systems around the country as they explore the limits of what's possible in transforming the way we care for people. A lot of the uh, typical strategies or the ones that are most uh, commonly voiced on the part of health systems have to do with disease management and disease and improving uh, recognition of and closing gaps in care around chronic conditions. That uh, has some merit. It's obviously a good thing for good condition management, but is unlikely to do a lot to change the total cost uh, problem and not necessarily going to change a lot in terms of the patient experience of care. So if you have to step back then and say, if you're going to be successful as an ACO, what do you have that's going to really bend the cost curve uh, in the first few years? And you've got to look to some of the way that primary care practices face their patients. A couple of examples of things that make a big difference both on outcomes and cost are uh, how easy is it to get an appointment. If a patient has a tough time getting in for an appointment, they're less likely to follow through on needed care. Maybe they'll skip 
uh, a follow-up visit for chronic disease management or ignore a symptom that came and went that should have uh, resulted in early recognition of a problem. So the outcomes are a little bit worse. When patients visit practices that uh, are inefficient and waste their time, they're a little bit less likely to follow up, a little bit more likely to end up in the emergency department. So you can see there's an intersection between the behaviors of a practice and the way uh, people respond to healthcare issues that impacts outcomes in a profound way and drives cost. So these are the kinds of things I bring up uh, when I'm talking with health plans and health systems, starting to look at the aggregate experience of care of individuals who are receiving care, not just as a patient satisfier, but as a critical variable in terms of the outcomes we're after. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Moore. Now, let me back up and try once again, because I don't think you got the humor part of that. Um, my question is, are physicians at the table in this conversation at this point to any material degree, or is most of the conversation being stewarded by institutional systems? What's your take uh -huh. on that? Yeah, I, I have to say the, the big boys at the table are typically the finance guys. Uh, that's how it's being driven because uh, at this point the discussion is all about how is the dollar going to flow, how is the money going to work. And it's one of those uh, uncomfortable issues that has been around for a long time, driving the way healthcare is delivered. The, uh, the saving grace in these conversations is that the ultimate solutions have to go through the way uh, care is practiced, and that gets to the physicians and the other uh, care delivery folks who want to do the right thing but have maybe not had the resources or focus or attention they've needed. Okay. So do you think there is a pathway for, shall we say, independent or quasi-organized, whether they be IPA or networks of IPA or alliances on their behalf, to become a, you know, to become a principal in that conversation, particularly – as it relates to the frame of reference of a CFO, for instance, in a local market, uh, from a hospital perspective, is there is there any is there any movement in that direction? Well, you know, I, I tell you, I'm fascinated by the potential of a primary care network coming together as an ACO. They don't start with the uncomfortable conundrum of uh, goring their cash cow and then figuring out how to make it up in savings. Uh, you know, a primary care ACO starts with uh, we serve our patients, we want to do it brilliantly, and if it ends up avoiding an unnecessary hospitalization, everybody wins. Uh, so that's a, that's a much easier path, uh, and I would think that that network would be able to pursue excellence uh, in an, an unabashed uh, and beautiful fashion if they're able to come together. Now, that's, that may reiterate some of the physician groups that have come together in the past and weren't able to manage the business parts or didn't have the data and information they needed to manage it well. What's different now is that there is better information available in general. We know a lot more about how to manage population health in general. And so I think there's a pretty good chance that uh, networks of physicians could come together and uh, offer themselves up as an alternative to a hospital-centric model. So it, it's fair to say there there have been some lessons learned, a la population health, whether it be under full-risk contracts or not. 
And those, shall we say, insights and expertise could could actually be brought forward today in, for instance, and I, I won't go on the ACO side necessarily as because it's tied to the federal uh, uh, regs and subsequent uh, in, implementation rules around accountable care organizations, the Medicare Shared Savings Programs, Pioneer at all, but just say, you know, a hospital that has a relation, decent relationship with a medical group or an IPA that has some um, some savvy with respect to administering risk contracts could enter into a, a, an agreement with a health plan and structure a health plan contract that really wraps itself around population management and equitably distributes the economics from the point of view of shared savings and how that overlays against declining in patient utilization. Isn't that isn't that certainly up there for grabs in terms of negotiating a contract around parameters like that? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think that uh, this is an opportunity where the plans that step up uh, and are interested are appear to me to be truly interested in doing the right thing because they see this as advantageous to their long-term survival uh, and nothing like the burning platform of of the whole system coming crashing down for them to want to step up and say, we'll try this. If it works, it's great. Uh, Everybody's nervous, but the potential win is huge. So the conversations that I've uh, been lucky enough to sit in on have had uh, plan folks very seriously uh, facing their primary care and the provider system saying, what can we do to help? How can we create an engagement where everybody wins? We don't want to just write a contract where if you win or lose, we still come out ahead. Uh, the, the point of this relationship is that they really want success on the part of the provider system. Failure hurts everybody. Success, uh, everybody wins. I'm glad to hear you say that because I, I, I absolutely, uh, you, you might be able to detect from the manner in which I presented that question to you that I have a point of view. <laughs> and um, uh, in, unfortunately, um, the um, excellent publication, Healthcare Leaders, put together a report that basically was an output of conversations that they had about concerns, top of mind, for primarily CFOs, but also CEOs of hospitals and health systems. And again, like you say, it was all about the dollar and the distribution of the dollar, and it didn't necessarily look at sort of the broader strategic glide path, which is we've got excess capacity, we've got outdated business models, we've got maldistribution, and we've got inequity on the primary care versus interventional route and all of these things need to be acknowledged and dealt with, and it it can't be an earnings quarterly earnings per share incremental uh, movement towards that particular glide path. It has to be a complete global restructuring of the business model, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. Um, I think that global restructuring is a pretty big uh, change to swallow at once, and so there may be steps on the path, I think that's probably going to be the pragmatic reality. Uh, You know, we start with a system that's pretty focused and centered around financing. 
and we need to turn it into a system that's focused much more on patient care outcomes experience with uh, careful attention paid to the fiduciary responsibility on total cost of care increases. And that's, that really is going to take time. The models I've seen step down uh, the rate of increase to uh, what's hoped to be uh, consumer price index inflation, uh, which would be you know, a phenomenal goal. Stepping it down over five years is hopefully enough time for a health system to figure out how to reorient its care. I've heard discussions of uh, a system with a wide network of hospitals, including some critical access hospitals, uh, contemplating the idea of transforming some critical access hospitals where there's probably excess capacity uh, into more uh, of an ambulatory care facility working for its regional population. And that that kind of thinking, I think, is is very appropriate. It's obviously going to take some planning, um, figuring out how to make that transition, figure out how it works into a greater whole. But uh, I'm encouraged by the direction the talks are going, the willingness to engage in serious discussion and put together contracts that begin to move in that direction, in spite of the fact that our starting point just seems to be so dismal in some ways, but it's moving in a much better direction. Well, thank you for that. And I, I, I also am not impractical, and I do know that that global repositioning can't be done overnight nor in one sort of um, uh, fiscal reporting period. But why not peel off uh, a sort of uh, a relationship with a health plan and define your version of accountable care that incorporates these generally accepted principles of what that could look like, you know, primary care, specialty care, institutional participation. Oh, and, oh, by the way, don't forget that subacute network downstream, uh, which has a definite partner relationship in the overall population management equation. So it's all there. It's all there. So I, 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 I get a little still at this stage with the reluctant participation in at least the federal program to, to not want to really be aggressive with uh, an Aetna or Humana or United in terms of locally structuring an accountable care model that works for parties and not in this, oh, my God, we can't swallow this all at once, but in a incremental fashion. Yeah, yeah, I think because this is still the early days of how ACOs come together, I still I see that there's a lot of opportunity to experiment with different models, different approaches. Uh, we, we've been talking uh, a lot about the hospital-centric system and how that works because they're already versed in plan negotiations and thinking about populations and how to manage that. Uh, I, I don't think that that should be the only model that's out there and would encourage health plans or others who are purchasers of health care to think about supporting alternative models so that we can have lots of different tests and see which uh, which are the better ones. Uh, you know, if a plan was interested in not just having, you know, a couple of hospital systems become ACOs and uh, we end up in another stalemate down the road when they have enough negotiating power to demand certain rates. Maybe in, uh, help a network of independent primary care folks come together under some not-too-burdensome governance umbrella uh, and assume maybe some risk or at the very least some upside potential for beautifully managing a population uh, and helping them get better outcomes that reduces unnecessary costs. 
I think that that kind of experimentation would be wonderful to see, and I'm hoping that there's some uh, plans that are willing to step out there and uh, support that. Well, meanwhile, while uh, we're talking about this accountable care uh, quest, uh, and you correctly uh, outlined the critical role of primary care in that mix, I had an article referred to me by Dr. Mike Sevilla, and uh, it has to do with the Kern Medical Center that's uh, proposing to cut their family medicine program. Do you have a thought about that? So so uh, a health system is planning to cut their family medicine program? Kern Medical Center uh, yeah, has decided not to accept first-year family residents and will likely close the program altogether, a move local doctors say could have disastrous consequences and worsen Kern County's primary care shortage. Yeah, sure, sure. Sounds like an odd move on their part. Um, you know, if, if you're based on a fee-for-service environment where proceduralists are disproportionately rewarded for the work they do, that would seem to make sense, but that's kind of uh, uh, swimming pretty strongly against the tide changes that uh, that we're experiencing in this whole ACO re-evolution of payment. Yeah, this, this is what gets to, well, wait a second. <laughs> How can you even see that kind of headline, given what we know about accountable care, the implosion of our health system, and the need for competent primary care direction of a population management and managed initiative? It just seems like, whoa, whoa wait a second. Am I, did I read that correctly? But yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely it's, it's an oddball headline. Definitely a contrarian action on their part. There may be all sorts of reasons behind the scene of which I'm unaware that would make it all uh, very obvious and appropriate. Uh, but on the face of it, it just seems like an odd move. And I thought the same thing. And I and I, the first thing I, I said back to to Mike was, well, maybe this is a negotiating ploy. <laughs> you know. I mean, maybe there's a bargaining chip on the table because this is a district support, a county-run uh, facility, and uh, uh, but who knows? Well, if, it's a, if it's a county-run facility, then this, the, the likely explanation uh, that's pure guesswork on my part is that this is just a repercussion of state and local governmental budgets going down the toilet and desperate moves that uh, in the long run don't make good sense. Sure. Okay. Well, in the remaining minutes we have, do you want to talk a little bit about some of uh, the the, up, the upside of mechanics like bundled payment and pay for uh, performance, no outcome, no income type stuff? Do you have any uh, any thoughts you'd like to share on that? Yeah, I've been sitting in on a bunch of discussions about bundled payment, and uh, the, the discussions make a lot of sense to me when I think about major procedures that cross silos of care, like uh, having a total joint replacement or, uh, you know, a, a major a valve replacement, heart valve replacement surgery. Um, those I could imagine a bundle where you could define the way care ought to be delivered according to evidence and uh, say there's a best practice and then over time create a financial incentive to move in that direction. That seems pretty clear. When I think about the uh, creating a bundle around strep throat or a urinary tract infection in primary care, it, it would seem very obvious. And I think uh, some folks who were maybe just looking at a single issue would mistake the fact that 
the population coming in with a seemingly simple issue come from an incredibly heterogeneous background, and therefore the interaction between that background and the current issue is profound, and to me makes the foundation of that type of bundle very questionable. Uh, so I, I'm nervous about that type of bundle. Of course, that applies to very sick people who might need a, a valve replacement. I think we can begin to risk adjust that sort of thing. But we're starting to talk about orders of complexity, uh, orders of magnitude of complexity that make me nervous about how bundles work for chronic conditions. Uh, and I don't like the idea of bundles around diseases because diseases are constructs that we apply to individuals. We need to treat people. Not just treating people is more important than just treating the conditions. And uh, there's a wonderful article about goal-oriented uh, outcomes in the New England Journal of Medicine that I think we ought to reflect on when we start thinking about how to measure quality and what bundles mean. So I look forward to that citation. But do you, in the remaining seconds we have, you want to spend a few moments just on the patient's role in accountable care? Do you have some thoughts about that? Yeah, I think uh, to trust as an individual <clears throat> that when something doesn't feel right, there may be something really wrong. Uh, the patient's voice is very important and is still vastly underrepresented in how we measure and understand quality. Things like effective communication, access to care, whether or not my views are taken into account if people listen to me, these are gold metrics that ought to be front and center of the way we measure accountability. Well, thank you for that. Fitting that one in, I know there's a lot more to talk about there, and, and uh, perhaps we can revisit that on a future show. But uh, I want to thank Dr. Gordon Moore for his time today. His insights are always welcome in terms of accountable care, primary care, medical practice, and such. We do this weekly on uh, This Week in Accountable Care on Wednesdays, 11 a.m. Thanks for listening. Please join us next week. Bye now. Thanks. Okay, and for those of you who are staying with us, I still am talking to Dr. Gordon Moore, and we're talking about accountable care and his experience of the marketplace, both in terms of uh, granular development of uh, exemplary practices and the more generic or uh, global implementation of strategy from the top down from a system perspective. So I, I didn't want to just cut off a conversation on the patient's role. I... I uh, go back to um, the original notice of proposed rule that came out of CMS that, that uh, sparked quite a bit of conversation and it went to this whole idea of, of not just a, a patient centricity and they said one way you're going to be patient centered, one way you're going to have the patient's voice in your medical group or physician network is they're going to be on the board. <laughs> They're going to sit on your board, and they're going to be a principal in the conversation. Therefore, no longer do you get to sort of have these sort of internal conversations about the business of your practice uh, uh, in an opaque fashion to the community you're ostensibly serving. They're going to be on your board as a principal. And most medical groups did not like that. 
So other than federally qualified health centers or more traditionally medical practice entities that are governmentally aligned, what did you have a thought or two about that? Did that make sense, or do you see some application where patient uh, involvement might be more effectively achieved? Yeah, I think it makes sense uh, to a certain extent. I certainly don't see that it's wrong to include uh, individuals who are served in that setting to have a voice in the governance of the organization. I think that makes a lot of sense. I see it as insufficient, though, uh, because there are too many times that sort of a, a, a someone who has the time to sit on a board or be on a patient advisory panel may not represent uh, others who are experiencing care in that practice, and, and we can't get everybody on the board. So, so what do we do about other individuals and different viewpoints? Uh, how do we represent those in the context of care delivery? And the answer to that should be relatively obvious. The the things that are important to individuals, what they want to achieve, uh, what they find valuable and not within healthcare, should inform their care delivery every time. Uh, again, I, I want to reference an article by David Rubin and Mary Tinetti in uh, the March 1st perspective this year in the New England Journal of Medicine where they talk about goal-oriented patient care as an alternative to uh, an alternative outcomes paradigm. I think they beautifully articulate that when we think about what people are trying to achieve, some of our understanding on how we measure quality changes dramatically. When uh, we talk about uh, getting people to be able to walk after a total joint replacement, uh, an individual, when having the discussion uh, and making a decision about surgery or not, may say, you know, I, I actually don't think I want to have that surgery. My quality of life would be best not going through that ordeal, but just being able to get around my house with a walker. And so the evidence-based quality metric is absent the patient's voice, and that's a mistake on the part of the way we measure and understand quality. So when I think about uh, seats on boards, that's helpful, but I think the a reorientation of measuring quality from the perspective of the individuals served in every circumstance, I think is much more profound, and I think that's where we need to move. Excellent. I am tweeting that link as we speak, by the way. I just uh, posted that. Um, I think that's obviously a much more effective way to bake it, if you will, into the fiber of the practice and the overall delivery system. Surely just having a representative at the board level uh, is uh, is a contribution in that direction, but I think you offer a much more granular way to achieve it. Um, well, do you have any anything that you'd like to talk about? I, I know I've, I've been, I'm jumping around a bit here, but that's the way my mind operates. I get triggered by... Um, by by the thoughts in the in the in the stream of our conversation, what's top of mind for you? Anything that you haven't addressed yet? Well, I think we touched on the main stuff. Uh, the main points that I'm seeing around ACO, uh, it's really just a marker for the evolution of the healthcare delivery model in the United States. I see some some fertile territory. I see some early sprouts, some green shoots that are coming up. Uh, we don't know yet exactly how it's going to pan out. Uh, I'm encouraged by the willingness to uh, go out there and try new things. 
uh, and at times I'm depressed by the slow pace of change, but that's just because I'm a very impatient guy and I want to see solutions rolling out a lot more quickly, but that's probably not uh, pragmatic. Uh, and I think we have a long way to go still. I uh, Just uh, touching back again on our discussion around uh, how we measure and understand quality and the patient's voice and all of this, uh, I think even the most forward-thinking discussions, I think, are falling way too far short, with the exception of uh, Ruben and Tanetti's article. Uh, I think they're, that's, a, that's a bullseye in terms of where we need to be going as a country. And uh, to that end, I think we need to be uh, thinking about how to fund experimentation outside all the usual suspects of large vertically integrated systems that are well-versed at grabbing research uh, and pilot dollars. Uh, and instead, we need to be getting out there with uh, some more inventive uh, and possibly energetic primary care virtual networks and encouraging them to explore new business models. I think we have a lot of eggs in the basket of large vertical in institutions. I think that testing should happen, and it is happening. But uh, where's the play outside of those uh, bricks-and-mortar-centric uh, systems? Oh, I love that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Virtual networks, I love that. Yeah, definitely, I think. Uh, so I'm, in a way, kind of summoning you know, the market to, hey, come on, you do have this opportunity. Rather than talk about what's wrong with the regs, look at the broader picture. Look at the innovation, the wide-open innovation that CMS is calling for through the CMMI, Centers for Medicare Medicaid Innovation. So, uh, yeah, I share your periodic depression, but, uh, you know, we, we've been at this a while, and uh, I don't think it's optional anymore. You know, gone are the days when, you know, our health care, uh, medical, the, the medical and inflation train was restricted to sort of health wonks and physician and hospital leadership. Now it's about the entire economy. The entire economy is at risk. So we, it's no longer contained. That horse is out of the barn. So something's going to happen. And I think having voices like yours involved uh, on both the macro and the granular level is one way to advance that football. So yep. thanks, thanks again for your time. Very well said. I know you got to run. Hopefully we can uh, uh, have you back in the not-too-distant future. And uh, if someone wants to inquire further about uh, what you're doing uh, both personally and uh, over at uh, Trio Solutions, how would they uh, how would they do that? Sure. Uh, happy to have them uh, ping me on Twitter at LGordonMoreMD or uh, email me at GMoreMD, that's G-M-O-O-R-E-M-D, like medical doctor, at gmail.com. Okay. Well, thanks again for your time and insights today. Have a great Pacific Northwest day, and we will talk to you on the next round. Of thanks, Dr. Great. Great. Thank okay, bye now. Bye.
was winner. 